everybody, Pre-Accident Podcast. It's Todd Conklin, your host. I'm here. It's true. It's happened. How's your week going? It's unbelievable that everything just flies by just as fast as possible. And uh, it's all crazy, but I guess we're going to make it. I mean, we've made it so far, so that's good. Boy, today's podcast is interesting. I didn't even know it was this interesting. Like, it's become, well, I, so I don't know. How it's, I guess it. It wasn't interesting. No, it is interesting to me. I don't want to sound like it's not interesting, but I didn't realize it was so controversial. Oh, my goodness, yes. This podcast is representing some controversy. So a couple of weeks ago, I did a presentation for David Provan. He did this uh, global innovation safety telecast thing, broadcast, computer cast, whatever you call it. It was really fun. I love Dave. He's great, good energy, um, great people. It was It was a great time. And Sidney Decker introduced me, and I it's, it was seen as somewhat controversial. I'm not going to tell you why. You'll have to sort of figure out if you think it's controversial or not. But I thought it was worthwhile actually giving you a little feel for our discussion that we had around this idea of innovation, uh, certainly in the midst of global uncertainty, which we've talked about a bunch. And so I clipped out my presentation Mostly what I focused on were Sydney's introduction and conclusion because I want to I want to see what you think about what he says. And then I sort of left a little bit of the meat on the bone in my presentation. But you should know I cut a ton of it out. But, I mean, if you want to hear it, we can talk more. I, I can always say it again, I promise. But listen carefully to this and see what you think. I'm curious if you also find this controversial. So is that enough? Okay, without any further ado... Here is Todd Conklin. Oh, wait, that's me. That's weird to talk about myself in third person. Here I am, and also my friend Sidney Decker, and we're gonna he, he's going to launch into some history. You'll kind of hear it happen. He, he starts out talking about The Field Guide to Understanding Human Error, one of my favorite books. I talk about it all the time. And then you'll hear a little presentation, and then he's going he's gonna to build a little discussion upon what I said. You see if you can pick out what is controversial. Here you go. Enjoy. Thanks for listening. This is the podcast. Essentially, as a mechanism to find a place to park blame, the field guide was all about not doing that, about finding ways and and rigorously explaining how uh, to avoid blame and develop better ways to understand why things went wrong and what really human error means. Um, of course, I, I'm in perpetual trouble with uh, with our dear colleague Eric Holnagel for even using the label human error in titles of books, as um, as he correctly points out, that this perpetuates the myth that it actually means something to begin with, rather than simply being an attribution. But this, um, this book uh, came out, and in, in the beginning of that book, I talk about a story that emerged from um, uh, Los Alamos. I was uh, and still am uh, a subscriber to the New York Times, and the New York Times had a little article in there that talked about uh, a couple of hard disks that had gone missing at Los Alamos um, uh, with some uh, rather sensitive data. Now, of course, Los Alamos is and was part of the University of California system, and it happened to employ at that time, uh, way back 20 years ago, 
um, a guy who uh, uh, came across the field guide was pointed out uh, that this book existed. Um, I think it may have been Ivan Pupiliti to actually show this to him. Um, and uh, he read the book. Uh, he understood that uh, this wasn't just talking about Los Alamos, um, but about a much wider problem of uh, blaming human error for things that went wrong um, and found it not only quite insightful, but, but, but empowering to start trying to shift the culture at Los Alamos. Um, 20 years later, this one-time informal fortuitous student of my first book has become a, um, I was going to say towering, but I, I suppose um, it's, you know, you, you extend in all dimensions, my dear friend. Um, the, uh, the, the largest, become the largest. Who, <laughs> well, we can, we can talk about various adjectives, yeah. But a figure who is, I think, become able, um, unlike any of us, in an unparalleled and uncanny way to turn the, uh, the high-flying uh, academic parlance, the ideology, the ivory tower stuff, um, to take it and turn it into baby food. Um, what I have found is that this is desperately necessary. Uh, of course, the person I'm talking about operates, lives, and, and, and works out and in a country that is surprisingly conservative when it comes to corporate culture, when it comes to uh, addressing hierarchy uh, and, and not deferring to hierarchy, um, that in fact is a country uh, full of, of stifled corporate ossified cultures that are anything but innovative, uh, despite the image that they sometimes are able to project, and despite a lot of exceptions to that rule, obviously. In such a culture, it takes somebody like our next speaker to be able to breach the immense uh, cultural uh, uh, wall of silence that envelops many of the initiatives that are necessary to do uh, a, a safety in a different way. Um, and our next speaker is able to do that because he presents disarmingly. He shows himself as um, not coming in with the full bore of the scholarship, even though it's in his back pocket um, because he's read a lot, um, but because he is he. I'm speaking, of course, of not only my one-time informal student, I'm not only speaking of the other half of Laurel and Hardy <laughs> when we are performing together, and the master of feeding babies, I am speaking of Todd Conklin, my dear friend and colleague. Over to you, Todd. Hey, Sydney, thank you. That was the sweetest and kindest introduction of all. I kind of wondered what you'd say, because we've known each other a really long time, and we have such interesting stories that we can use to blackmail and coerce each other to do crap we don't want to do. <laughs> For instance, like meetings like this. We could just toss that out as kind of an example. I am tickled pink to hang out with you guys. Uh, I'm also tickled pink to be a part of such an august body. And the discussions so far have really been riveting. Uh, and I find that challenging and fun. I think I'm going to knock it down a few levels here for you. Just remember as we progress that the camera actually adds 100 pounds. So I'm much thinner than I look. And Sydney's basically a skeleton. So as long as we get that out there, we can kind of work from that direction and move forward. There's a lot of stuff I want to talk about today, but this idea of bouncing forward, and I've sort of captured a couple of things 
that John said, first of all, let me switch my background, although donuts is really my favorite thing to think about. I really think we should probably go with the idea that safety is sexy. Um, and the fact that I'm sitting in front of this slide actually fulfills many fantasies for me. So this is a pretty big day as we progress through. I, I want to start with a little story for you guys because I think the story I want to tell, and it's really recent. It just happened not very long ago. I, I was working with an organization, and uh, we were actually doing some restorative work post some fatalities, um, which is uh, work we can talk about in great detail. I think it's maybe the more important work we do, and uh, it, it deserves a lot of attention. But in the midst of it, I had a, a, a manager send me an email to describe a, uh, an event, and the manager was really motivated by this event. And, of course, I'm just reading the email, so I'm not nearly as uh, – I don't have nearly – let me use the, the parlance. I don't have nearly as much skin in the game in this one as, uh, as you'd think I would because it's just an email. And he tells a story of a, of a guy who's a fueler, and his job is to fuel these haul trucks. And that's what he does all day long, every day. He fuels haul trucks. And they were in the midst of uh, having a safety stand-down post a major event. And we can talk in great detail about how um, we feel about safety stand-downs. I do think it's a really interesting way to get people together to tell them to care more and try harder. But that's not the point of this story either. He was fueling a vehicle, and he was in the process of almost being complete. So he almost had the vehicle entirely fueled. And the safety stand-down started at 10 a.m., and it was like 10.03 a.m., and he was finishing up, and his supervisor called him and said, you have to get here. This is mandatory. They're going to take roll. You cannot be late. Get here as soon as possible. And so what the fueler did was finish up, shut the machinery off, jump in a vehicle, and drive to the safety stand-down. And in the midst of doing that, everything's fine so far. He uh, didn't take the time to reel the hose back up and did not remove it from the truck. So he basically left the truck connected to the fueling apparatus. With me so far? So uh, am, I, am I painting a little picture for you? The meeting, I'm sure, was stunning. I, I bet it was super interesting and probably involved lots of slides and, and people telling you to care more and try harder. A, a classic safety stand down. And then the meeting was over. And everybody went back out to work, which is probably what they wanted to do anyway. And so because it was a large group of people, the driver of the vehicle that was being fueled, the haul truck driver, got out of the meeting before the fueler did because the fueler, unfortunately, was late. And so he had to sit in the front of the room because your punishment for being late to a safety stand down is that you have to sit in the front row because the guys have filled the back row for probably hours before the meeting started. And so the, the driver gets to the truck, jumps in the truck, and drives away. And you can imagine the event that happened, a stellar, stunning event, predictive by every metric. He drove off with the fuel hose in the tank of his truck, and he ripped the fuel ho hose off the fuel pump, now, it broke away at a breakaway joint that was actually designed in the fuel hose for that very inevitability, and, and it worked perfectly. That's the event. And the uh, supervisor writes me this really detailed email describing um, his need to respond to this event. 
And he explains to me in great detail how the fueler deviated from his standard procedure and, in fact, took a shortcut um, to go to this meeting and did not reel the hose back in or decouple the vehicle from the fuel pump. And he also told the story of the driver who clearly took a shortcut and did not do a 360-degree walk-around. So there was no 360-degree walk-around, which would have, of course, heightened his awareness to the fact that there was a fuel hose hooked to his truck. He would have decoupled it, and all problems would have been solved. The supervisor's comment to me was that he really thought that both of those people should be punished equally. And the letter he was writing to me, I, I think, was seeking advice on how much punishment should actually happen. And so I read it carefully, and I wrote back and said, how often does this happen? How often do you leave fuel hoses in the vehicle and drive off and the breakaway coupling breaks away as designed? I would be interested in knowing that before we go further on our discussion. And he writes back almost immediately. I mean, he was clearly just sitting there waiting for me to respond. And he said, that is the second time it's happened in seven years. And so I wrote back and said, I'm not sure this is an event. Um, I actually think this could be an excellent example of your system's performing exactly the way you've designed them to. And when testing the brittleness of this system, your choice to either blame and punish or learn and improve is just that. It's a choice. And as a leader, that deliberate strategy that you're going to move forward and sort of lay over the entire organization is really going to color what happens. And he wrote back and he said, well, I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. And I said, well, what did you want from this? What's the desired outcome? Because that would help me. And that part of the discussion got really interesting. Because that part of the discussion allowed us to have really a quite interesting and I thought wonderful talk about this idea of how leadership reacts. And I want to take you down that journey as we talk about what John Green so cleverly called, not as clever as safety is sexy, the great COVID reset. I don't know jack squat about COVID. I'm not going to talk about COVID, but I want to talk about this idea of the deliberate path forward. Because we're in a discussion today, pretty much all day long, where we're talking about safety innovation. And I think first and foremost, as we talk about safety innovation, I would take you to a model that's not in the safety science side of the house, but in fact comes from a man named Ev Rogers, a book that if you've not seen or read, you should, called Diffusion of Innovation. And he talks about the innovation model, a curve. It's kind of a bell curve that's been sort of squished down. And he talks about the idea that there are, uh, there are innovators, the people on sort of the cutting edge, the, the people that are out there on the very sharpest point actually making tracks and breaking eggs and changing ideas. And then behind them are the early adopters. 
And then behind them are the early majority. And if I remember this correctly, I'm going on memory. Behind them, I think, are the late majority. And then the tail of that curve are the laggards. And that's how innovation moves as it carefully moves. And and Rogers studied the innovation of hybrid seed corn in the Midwestern part of the United States. And he looked at people who actually were farming, who were growing corn as a part of their agricultural crop, and he looked at what type of people actually make new ideas happen. And I think a big part foundationally of what we want to talk about is what do we as a profession think about the fact that we're once we were identified as these innovators, these people on the, the edge, but now the curve is sort of catching up with us. And what's amazing about the discussion we had around the fueler and the hose being left is that it didn't take nearly as long or nearly as much effort to actually get that leader to understand that ultimately the goal is is to default towards this idea of improvement, of getting better. And I think that really bears some important discussion for all of us as we think about the direction that safety is moving. Because it's been a really interesting 15 months or so. You were there, so you know exactly what it was like. But you watched the world move from really organizations that were really set up to optimize efficiency to beginning discussions around this idea of optimizing towards resilience or or capacity. And what's happened is, is that the idea that we operate in this complex environment is becoming more mainstream. And I think it's been amplified greatly by the fact that we've gone through this change, this crisis. And what I think is most valuable for us to think about, and this is kind of what I've been doing a bunch this year, it's been a really interesting year for me, is the ability to sort of think about the great COVID reset, as as John said. I actually think we have an opportunity to really not think of this as a reset. But if we use some of the knowledge and theory that comes out of the fusion study, what we know is that, in fact, this great period of uncertainty has probably amplified some of these early adopting ideas so that they're more part of a dialogue of at least that middle part of the bell curve, the early majority. And I would even suggest, to some extent, the late majority. Because to have a discussion with a supervisor who's really interested in punishing both a fueler and a driver, but to end that discussion actually talking about organizational improvement and learning from typical work and understanding how to really look at and value the ability to learn is a pretty important indicator for us. I I mean... I actually think, and you guys jump in and tell me if I'm wrong, because I'm wrong on a ton of crap. I mean, just listen to me. You'll hear it. I actually think we're in a position where the ideas we've talked about before that were somewhat novel theories for organizations to try and really improve are now becoming much more mainstream ideas 
as the idea of optimizing systems towards having additional capacity is becoming apparent. And that's been a really important part of what I've thought about this year. And my guess is you have as well. Because there's a couple things we should just sort of stipulate as a part of our discussion. Because we're talking about innovation. We're talking sort of about the edge. We're moving forward in the way we think. And we're challenging one another. And one of the things I'm going to tell you is that the senior leadership of your organization was really freaked out this year. I mean, really freaked out. And they were freaked out because they were met with this dramatic uncertainty. And this dramatic uncertainty really forced them into a position where they almost had to think about the world in a way that has been traditionally different. They had to move from this idea of optimizing systems so they're efficient, better, faster, cheaper, shareholder value. These are all words that companies use around the globe. The systems that really talked about the notion of additional capacity, of resilience, of, of hedging bets, of, of storing up both resources, time, energy, people, places, processes, in order to become recoverable. And that idea, I think, is incredibly valuable to what we talk about. And, and it's really hinged around this notion that is dramatic and as sexy because John's made that word okay to use, so I'm going to use it as much as I can, as sexy as it is to believe that if we could predict the future, we could control the future, which is relatively the story of every single person who's ever said the word leading safety metrics in a conversation around a boardroom table anywhere in the world. All that is is sort of this fantasy idea that if we can predict the future We can control the future. But here's what we know, and it was amplified dramatically in the last 16 months. The future's uncertain. And and I think there's good news in this statement. And the good news I'd share with you is that the future's always been uncertain. This isn't new. This isn't even terribly shocking. It's that we've moved on this diffusion of innovation model so that more people are now interested in the things we've been thinking about for a long time. And I guess that's exciting. I mean, it's, to me personally, a tiny bit frightening because it was way more fun to be a disruptor. It was way more fun to go to meetings and tell people their baby was ugly because it sort of gave you this, uh, this nice status that you could move forward with. But it's kind of gone away. And so we know some things as we move into this discussion that are pretty important to us. One is it's it's really kind of stupid to try to predict the future in order to control the future. We have to accept the fact that we don't know. And you've heard it a bunch already today. In fact, Sydney was brilliant. You heard me say that right, Sydney. Brilliant. You were brilliant in the fact that you talked directly about the idea that we simply have to be curious. We have to think. We have to look forward. We have to ask questions. We have to think about things in ways that we have not thought about them before. But I think there's two questions that I'd challenge you. And if you haven't asked these yet in your organization, ask them. The first one is bring some workers together and ask them this. When we went to the essential worker and the administrative burdens that we placed upon you went away, 
and we went from 400,000 rules to three rules, what'd you miss? And their answer, I think, is going to be relatively important for you to listen because they're going to talk about the things that they need the organization to pick up and carry. And then the second question is, what didn't you miss? Because I think that gives us the opportunity to declutter and improve our organizations from a platform that everybody understands, a platform that is moving towards optimizing efficiency, towards optimizing this idea of capacity. That, I think, is the story of the pandemic. And that's the challenge I want to give everybody, is coming out of this stronger and better, I think is not only a nice idea, but quite honestly, pretty doable. It's just a matter of making the environment in which we work sensitized to the fact that a lot of change happened and we moved them on that innovation curve. They're no longer those incredible innovators, early adopters. We're now sort of in the midst of the bell curve. That's what I've got for you guys today. I hope that helped. It was sure fun talking to you. Todd, don't go away yet because uh, we want a lot more. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you from everyone. That was um, reflective, considerate, deep, and incredibly encouraging. It is, of course, a well-known um, uh, fact in, 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 in history and historiography that the, uh, the power of pandemics is to create historical inflection points, um, uh, women's emancipation, in fact, worker emancipation after the Black, black Death in, in Europe, for example, in the, in the, in the Middle Ages. Um, because simple power of numbers, not, not enough workers to do all the work. So their bargaining power shot up dramatically, right? And so uh, not all countries capitalized on this based on feudal structures and other things, but um, that we would be facing uh, a moment of inflection, historical inflection, and therefore enormous opportunity was always dawning on me. But to hear and see it unpacked and being applied to the scholarship um, that that you also have, of course, been part of uh, uh, developing and and uh, promoting over the past uh, two decades, um, is 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 really empowering. That was a long sentence. Um, <laughs> what I what I mean in uh, uh, it, w- with all my heart is um, I am uh, both humbled and. Um, and encouraged by the idea that a pandemic presents this opportunity to us. In a sense, what I would love to do, perhaps not now, but in a further panel discussion, and perhaps even throughout the the remainder of the day, is to make sure that we have told each other everything that we need to say to each other to not miss this opportunity. Um, You raised those two questions. Those are relatively if I may use the word pedestrian decluttering yeah. questions yeah. and incredibly lowball, it, very important. I'm with you. That's not the issue. Um, but it's particularly the answers that will give us uh, some connections into what we shouldn't be missing in order to capitalize on this opportunity. I have seen some questions come by, Todd, but we won't have to deal with them yet because I think we need to do that once we're in the panel. Um, but where um, 
th there are already suggestions that how long will this humility last, um, this openness to understanding that we are at an inflection point? When will the cynicism of capitalism come, come roaring back in with short-term economies and three-monthly reporting cycles um, that get us right back into safety one um, without a blink? Um, what is it that we should, should be doing uh, and shouldn't be missing in order to prevent that from happening? How can we how can we sustain that humility and inquisitiveness and the realization that the world is moving faster than our ability to predict can ever be? Um, so so um, there's some minutes to reflect on those before I have to give it back to Dave. But um, if you want to go ahead, my friend, so you I, and I could be having this conversation over a couple of beers for for the rest of the, your evening. Let's do it. I'm, I'm there for you. So I, I think it's going to be short lived. I, I think I think we must act as as timely as we possibly can and i think that it'll be superseded by events because i think there's going to be a great amount right. of denial this belief that we sort of made it through this and the need to go back the, the i think john called it the great covid reset this idea of going back somehow is attractive because it 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 again reduces the belief and uncertainty and I, I and I think the idea that this is a phenomenon that won't happen again for a hundred years um, makes it attractive to actually go back to the very same administrative burdens and just bureaucratic crap that we we put on workers. I think the advantage we have is that we now have a frame of reference that's larger than us. It, it's larger than the field guide. It's it's larger than safety. It's actually mm -hmm. larger. It's 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 globally impactful because they can really recall the period of time when they weren't ready for an uncertain event that they did not predict, and and I think our job to a great extent is to leverage that as carefully as we can and as effectively as we can within our organizations while the iron is hot, and and it's probably less hot now than it was even a month ago. But I, yep. I do think the opportunity to change the conversation uh, at, at really the organizational leadership level has brought itself to the forefront. And, and it's interesting to me with that Fueler story, that, that supervisor that was pretty much going to punish those guys, that when we took it to the larger sort of uncertainty question, he was really prepared to go there. And to me, I think the thing that I think about most, Sydney is how how Ev's work around the diffusion is really poignant and how once our ideas were novel and aggressive and edgy, I, I'm not sure our ideas have changed dramatically. I think the organization's much more prone to receive information that they probably did not think they could receive even a year ago, year and a half ago. And the one I'm drawn to, just because I find it so incredibly compelling, because it's it's really to a great extent um, your life's work, is the notion that if we build more diversity in our strategic decision making, we make better strategic decisions, which I think is directly counter to what um, captains of industry have thought in the past. And I think that's very appealing. And how ironic that it's two white guys in their middle age talking about that top head. Yeah, I know. <laughs>
Oh, geez, man. I went long again. I cannot believe it. Where did this come from? When did I start going? I owe you two minutes. That's, that's, uh, I promise you. So did you hear? What part did you think was controversial? Because there is a part this, I, I mean, there was a ton of email traffic around this and lots of texting and stuff. And it was, I mean, it, a lot of people were got, got their little feelers hurt a little bit. I didn't because, uh, you know, there's no need to get your feelers hurt. I think everything is good and everyone's intentions were were pure. But you, you see what you guys think. I love the conversation and I love spending time. It's fun. Steel sharpens steel and it's fun to challenge one another. So that's cool. So that's the pod for today. Thanks for listening to you guys. Learn something new every single day. I bet you did today. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Take care of each other. Check in on one another. That's really important. And until then, my friends, as Sydney Decker would say, be sexy and safe.